This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, our unicorn builder is Joe DeSimone, co-founder and former CEO of Carbon, an idea to production platform that's raised over $680 million in funding. Joe, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brett. Great to be with you. As I was preparing for this interview, I watched an incredible TED Talk that you gave about eight years ago. So I'd love to begin there. How have you seen 3D printing evolve over the past eight years? <laughs> well... You know, that TED Talk happened two years after uh, we started the company, right? And we came out of stealth mode at the TED conference and our website went live and a paper in science appeared. So sort of an entrepreneurial hat trick there. But, you know, that first printer, I think of more as a toaster, very rudimentary first version of the printer. And we've evolved quite significantly both on the printer itself as well as all the resins. And so what you saw there was a you know, very much a prototyping-like printer and now we're a full-blown manufacturer or provider of manufacturing technologies to the world so way way different super interesting a few questions we'd like to ask and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick first one what founder really inspires you does anyone come to mind so you know i actually had a little bit of a different play on this alan malali is the person that comes to mind for me alan is the iconic former iconic ceo of ford motor company before that, he was the uh, CEO of Boeing Commercial Aircraft, lead engineer on the 777. And you know, he did such a turnaround on Ford, I want to call him a founder, even though Henry Ford founded the company. But Alan is my guy. You know, I'm a professor through and through in you know, chemistry, chemical engineering, material science. And and when I when, I, when we launched Carbon, we got Alan Mullally on our board of directors. And Alan has been by my side on so many things. And he's been my inspiration from business model to how to scale manufacturing, how to lead people, how to lead a business. He's my guy for sure. What's the number one takeaway that you've, you've walked away from working with him? You know, there's dozens. You know, he was instrumental in our business model, but probably what he's really known for is his management style and approach, a business plan review process. And, you know, when we started scaling the company and had to go from a technology development effort into a going concern and building a real sustainable business, I studied everything that Alan would share with us and implemented his business plan review process, which is basically the weekly meeting of all the key aspects of the company and how to lead people through a series of KPIs, red, yellow, green, you know, perspective on each one of those and making sure you're focused on the things that are red only, assume the green's under control and just really focus on the things that, that matter. And I think he was instrumental in allowing us to come out of the gates and now build an enduring business that we've got. It looks like you started your teaching career in 1990, then looks like your first company that you founded, that was 2004. So in the back of your mind, did you always have this idea that you were going to eventually start a company and eventually become a founder? Or did that just happen when you saw an opportunity and, and said, hey, I, I have to capitalize on this. I need to go build a business. Now, you know, so I was coming through, uh, you know, Virginia Tech grad school, undergrad or science college outside Philly. I'm a Philly guy. Go Phillies, go birds. You know, I went to Virginia Tech, came out of there. UNC Chapel Hill hired me when I was 25 as a chemistry professor. And 
I had no exposure to Virginia Tech for startups. You know, this is the late 1980s and then 1990s at Carolina. And I had a student come through and said, look, I'm, I want to start a company. And so it's that student pull that moved me in this direction. And then I probably became really enamored with it when we had some technology developed in my lab at Carolina, which was a breakthrough on eliminating the forever chemicals used in synthesis of fluoropolymers, Teflon. Uh, you hear about these PFOS chemicals. We had a technology that eliminated it. And DuPont only partially licensed it from the university and did not fully implement the technology. And I, this is where I learned the value of being an entrepreneur or founder and having, you know, waking up and making it, all you focus on is getting something across the goal line where we had our hands tied when we licensed something to DuPont and didn't get fully commercialized. And it, it's been the slowest train wreck on the planet related to these environmental pollutants that never got implemented. And it's out of that frustration that I, you know, I really became an entrepreneur and been able to carry on that legacy at Carolina now, now here at Stanford. Well, let's dive into your entrepreneurial career and, and what you're building and what you've been building for what I think it was about 10 years, you said now. So at a very high level, what does carbon do? So, well, we figured out a breakthrough on how to do 3D printing. That's a hundred to a thousand times faster and having the resins that had the properties to be a final part. So fundamentally, we took 3D printing from a prototyping only technology into mass manufacturing. And, um, you know, these are massive markets and we make things with light instead of with molds. And light is a powerful tool to make complicated structures that you can't make with molds. And so, you know, this opens up, you know, designs that, you know, people haven't been able to manufacture and, you know, some a very simple statement. You don't buy what you can't make, you know, and therefore what you buy is that usually the things that are easy to make. Well, there's a lot of designs that, you know, with traditional manufacturing are impossible to make, but with light and advanced 3D printing technologies and advanced materials and advanced software, we can make the unmakeable. And all of a sudden now you're, you're able to scale things and scale things, whether it's a million things or millions of things or where it's an N of one, it's bespoke and making them millions at a time. And so this digital manufacturing world allows us to, to scale things and, and, we, and we're a technology provider. We provide the printers through a subscription model. We have an app store for resins that have over 50 different resins with the properties to be a final part. We have design software that allow people to design things. And basically our customers, what they're doing is they're designing products on a tool that is also the same tool that allows them to scale it up in manufacturing. So this intermediates the design process or the product development cycle. Normally you design products in CAD software. When you go from bits to atoms, you go to a prototyping technology, which is not your scale up technology, usually not even the same material. And you do all that because you got to cut a mold, a piece of steel to mold something, and then you scale it. Well, when you make things with light, at scale on our printer, you skip those two middle steps. You skip prototyping, you skip tooling. And that dramatically accelerates the innovation cycle at a company or a university. And you could be designing something on a Monday morning and testing it on Tuesday. And instead of taking months to make something, we dramatically reduce it to hours. It's a pretty cool scale up of speed of innovation. Is Adidas a customer? I see uh, an image of their shoes on the homepage. 
yeah, Adidas is our, our our lighthouse customer. You know, sort of gets me to you know thinking about how you bring technology into the marketplace. But uh, Adidas is one of those companies that allowed us to really lead a whole new product line. And that was one area that we partnered with exclusively in footwear. We're no longer exclusive with Adidas there, but this allowed us to really take a technology and scale it. It's a really amazing partnership that continues to today. Yeah, I got excited when I was looking at the website because I own that exact pair of shoes that's shown there. I'm a big runner and I I bought those, I think it was two years ago when they first came out and those are my go-to running shoes. So appreciate the work you did there to to support that. You've kept my bones uh, at least working somewhat properly as I uh, continue to run. Well, you know, a fact, there's dozens of those shoes on the Adidas website today. And in fact, uh, since two years, I think there's been two different turns of resins and designs. And now they have the new 4D Forward 3s that are absolutely amazing, even lighter weight than what you did. They they now have a bio-based feedstock and they ha- they deflect your shoe upon vertical impact to 13 degrees forward. And so it's you're running way faster with these new shoes on. So it's a really cool company and and they exploit our technology and our materials. What about the hockey helmets and, and helmet safety? I feel like this website was personalized for me. I'm a big fan of hockey and I'm a big fan of running. And sure enough, right in the, the banner there on the, the top of the website, you have both of those. So talk to us about helmets and, and helmet safety. Yeah. So, you know, maybe just taking a step back and you, see, you talk about the, the Adidas running shoes. The cool thing about Adidas running shoes is basically replacing foam with an elastomer lattice. And to me, this harks back to, you know, one of my favorite entrepreneurial Bibles out there, if you will. And this is a Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing a Chasm. Crossing a Chasm is an amazing roadmap of how to bring new technology forward in the marketplace. And they talk about the so-called compelling use case, that use case that will create pool for your products, that nails the whole product concept, whatever that is, and it has a word of mouth community that can communicate and reinforce our fundamental messages. And so Adidas running shoes was that use case for us. They helped us cross the chasm and it was a replacement of foam with a elastomer lattice. And what you clearly saw was, you know, scaling something from an innovative design that's not makeable by any other technology that can scale to millions per year and can constantly innovate. So the new designs are like on their fifth or sixth generation of designs now since 2017 launch. And that just shows you the the constant growth there. And to me, and back to Jeffrey Moore's book, he talks about working the bowling alley of your product introduction. And by that he meant, you know, what is the first bowling pin that you want to knock over that has an impact in related products? And so for us, using our 3D printing technology with innovative lattices, replacing foam with an an elastomer that's got amazing performance to replace foam, that was a first pin. But the cascading effect that that had was, well, that same technology with a different resin, one that was damping instead of energy returning, opened up the helmet protection marketplace. And so now almost every NFL player and many D1 athletes are wearing a football helmet either from Riddell or Vices or some other companies where our technology is used to make the liner of the helmet so it's a perfectly fitted helmet. So that you know for head protection, one of the most important things is perfect fit. And with the different anatomy and hairdo, their heads get scanned and it's a personalized liner. That expanded into CCM ice hockey and other kinds of helmets 
Uh, now every pilot with a fixed wing aircraft in the United States military, except for like the F-35 are wearing helmets this way. And it just opened up the whole protection marketplace. And now we got gloves that are protecting your hands and new markets there. And then bicycle saddles, another foam replacement. And so a Specialized and Physique Royale and others are introducing amazing new products with replacing foam that are bioengineered bicycle saddles that optimize blood flow and performance and lowers the maximum force on your sit bones by like 20%. And you know, Lance Armstrong says it's the most high performance saddle he's ever used. And so these become the bowling alley and, the, and, the, and one product knocks, you know, helps grow the next product, grows the the volume of resin. So the resin price comes down. It's just a huge cascading of events. If you can find a great bowling alley of product market fit and just keep digging at it. How do you choose that bowling alley? Because when I when I look through, when I think about your platform and you know, maybe thinking back to what you were maybe experiencing in the early days, it seems like there's just an endless number of applications, an endless number of use cases. How did you know where to put attention into and you know, where to say no so that you could focus on those areas? Was that something you struggled with in those early days? You know, it was a little bit of a meta-analysis and you have to squint a little bit to see it and you have to bring everybody along. So and a lot of it has to do with where do you have a full product, a full end-to-end solution. And so interestingly for us, we started off first in the dental marketplace. And we knew that, you know, Invisalign was in this market. Invisalign created a new market, uh, transparent braces. You know, their patents expired a number of years ago, and now they only have 50% market share of the industry they created. And we basically power the rest. And so moving into markets that can scale with a, you know, and there, it wasn't that dramatically different for us from a design point of view, because 3D printing was introduced in that area, but we had a more reliable product. We had a faster printing process. Uh, we had amazing software and we crushed that market uh, with our technology, including dry, environmentally responsible post-processing that didn't use solvents or water. And so we brought a, a superior solution to a high-tech market and we crushed it. And then we extended it to dentures. Now we have over half a million people wearing the first FDA approved 3D printed dentures and uh, all bespoke. Every one of these examples I'm giving you is a bespoke product, an N of one. Everyone's different, but we make them by the millions. And that's the dental marketplace. You know, the denture marketplace is a $14 billion marketplace. It's, you know, 40 million people in 2020 got dentures. And, um, you know, it's not reimbursed by insurance. It's hard to get a job if you don't have your your teeth. It's a huge upward mobility thing to be able to have, be presentable. And, and so we're really proud of the business we created in the denture marketplace. But, you know, oral care and healthcare was basically 40% of our business. And then we launched this commodity products and with Adidas, that marketplace was the foam replacement market. So even though it's got disparate customers like Adidas to bicycle saddles, the helmets, it's foam replacement. And so you have to look at it from that lens that it, even though those products are very different industries, but there's a commonality in the material you're replacing. And so to us, that's the bowling alley, the foam replacement, even though it looks really disparate. And so that's the second phase of the company was in re foam replacement with elastomer lattices. And that basically is the you know, majority of the business today. And But now we're entering our third phase, which is arguably the biggest TAM for us. And that's the rigid plastic marketplace. 
And boy, that's really diverse, but that's over a hundred billion dollar TAM that we're wading our way into. And it's taken longer than we thought. We didn't quite have all the resins. We didn't have the full cleaning solution. We didn't have all the software, but that, you know, we've invested heavily in this over the last uh, two, three years. And we've got that. And now we've got some lighthouse customers rolling out and the rigid plastics. And, you know, once you start moving into all these markets, you become really sticky because it's manufacturing. You know, people introduce products and they want to do a seven, 10 year run. And so we've become really sticky and help people scale their products in, in these new areas. Have you had to deal with any critics who don't believe in this approach? Maybe if we're just looking at foam, for example, is there anyone who says, you know, foam is safer, foam is better. We, we shouldn't be experimenting with new materials. Have you had to deal with any challenges like that? And the reason I ask is I've, I've just seen that a lot with emerging technology is there's typically someone who stands to be displaced and that person or company or group that's being displaced isn't very happy about that happening. Brett, they're everywhere. The naysayers are everywhere. You know, change is not normal for people and they're everywhere, you know, and you're displacing other people and other products. I mean, you know, dentures today take eight chair side visits to get fitted for dentures. Uh, they're handcrafted. It's expensive and, you know, you lose your dentures. And I've heard so many, you know, horror stories of, you know, some old lady had it in there, you know, rolled up in a newspaper and threw their paper in a fireplace and they're gone. You're back in that chair eight more times. And I've heard a horror stories so, of, you know, people that have Alzheimer's disease or, or other things and have to get back into those chairs. It's, it's horrible stories. But, you know, once you go digital, you know, you go from eight chair side visits to two chair side visits. And if you lose your dentures, you, you order a four pack because it's all digital. And it's very different, fundamentally different. And you're displacing old ways of thinking, old ways of doing things. And you're creating better products that are more cost effective. So one of the challenges is, you know, as we roll out these new technologies, not all our customers, customers that make the products are passing on the cost savings to their customers. So you got to really think about the dynamics of a marketplace and, and how do you create those opportunities? And, and so I, there's naysayers everywhere, Brett, in every aspect of what you're doing. And thank goodness we've got an amazing set of markets that we're going into that are just ginormous. We got compelling technology, we got great people, we got great investors. And they've been by our side and, you know, we had over hundred million in recurring revenue last year and the company's growing and it's not easy building these businesses in manufacturing, but, you know, we figured it out and uh, we'll keep going. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. One thing that I see a lot in the media, and I'm sure you see it as well, is this idea that really glamorizes being a startup founder. They make it sound so cool, so fun, so exciting, which it definitely is, but I think it underplays a lot of the pain and the, the challenges that founders have to really take on in order to be successful. So throughout your journey, what would you say has been the lowest point or, or one of these points that, you know, really was difficult and challenging for you to navigate it? And, and how did you navigate that? Well, these moments come all the time. And, you know, I, I tend to put people into one of two buckets. They're either a missionary or a mercenary. And, you know, when you're a founder, CEO, you're, you know, you are absolutely a missionary and, and you're passionate about that. And, you know, when I would walk into the parking lot at Carbon 
and see all the cars, all I would think about would be car payments and mortgage payments and college tuition bills and people left great companies to work for your company. And, you know, that puts a pit in your stomach. And so every one of the crucible moments that you're thrown into, you're supporting people behind that and, and it becomes even more grueling. So examples of things like, you know, getting your first mini factory up and running in Europe and everyone's excited and and you go off for the Christmas holiday and you shut down the factory and it doesn't restart in January. And you had no idea what the hell happened. And you realize that the resin that you've been making is now shipping by boat coming from Ireland. And it was a really cold winter and the resin crystallized in ways that your, your QC, QA didn't detect. And now you're, you know, and just it's all people that pull out and Basically, like pulling a rabbit out of the hat, you technically figured out what the hell went wrong and you fixed it. But, you know, you're in production and your factory is not starting. And boy, that's just awful to put everybody through that. But, you know, you keep your head, you know, you keep your head to keep your head, you know, and and you work the problem. It's kind of like Apollo 13 over and over and over again. You know, printers running in Shanghai for the first time and you know, you got a factory up running faster than ever before. And then all of a sudden printers are failing one after another after running for three, four months. And you have a clever engineer recognize, you know, the mode of failure looks exactly like the mode of failure we saw in Silicon Valley when the fires happened and we had smoke in our building and it was a contamination that got into our light engine. And so it's these insights of people that allow you to pull rabbits out of a hat that I think epitomizes what it's like to be a do deep tech with people that are great. And you, you know, you lead through these. And even though they're extremely challenging moments, what comes out of that are the people stories. And that's what I loved about being a founder CEO. You know, some people have asked me to be CEO of some other places after I stepped down at Carbon. And I quickly tell them of a great story of going to Alaska fly fishing. Uh, the last weekend it was open before they shut down for the winter. I was really nervous to go there, but we went up there. Uh, there were no bugs because they had a frost before. It was 50 degrees. Uh, we caught the biggest fish I've ever caught. There were no people there. It was the most spectacular event. I don't think I'll go to Alaska again because it'll never be that good. I don't think I'll be CEO anywhere else because it'll never be that good. Even though it was challenging and we built an amazing company, but you just all those stories are just absolutely amazing. It still chokes me up thinking about. That's awesome. And yeah, I, I can definitely see that. I think there's certain things that just peak out and there's, you know, there's no way to really go back and try to recreate it. It's it's best just to to move on to something else. And it sounds like that's been the case for you here. You're not going to get better than that CEO position that you had with Carbon and the experiences that you had with the, the team there. You're spot on, Brett. Now, let's talk a little bit about the 3D printing space. So, I'm not from this space, as you know, I'm you know an outsider just talking with you here. But what I've seen in the media over the last 10 years is there was a lot of hype around 3D printing. And then there was a lot of coverage around this idea that it was overhyped, that there weren't you know, real world applications. And it looked like a lot of those 3D printing companies really struggled to succeed. And, and a lot of them are, are no longer here. What do you think you got right as you were building the company? And what made you succeed when others failed? You know, it's funny, you're spot on, and I still see new ones coming up. And you ask a simple question, you know, what is the killer app that is going to be uniquely powered by your technology? And so many people struggle with answering that. It's remarkable. 
we got dozens and dozens in, you know, from dental to foam replacement to all the rigid plastics. We had dozens and dozens use killer use cases that required, you know, hundreds of printers to scale. And that's how you build a, you know, these are amazingly large markets with all these killer apps and people simply don't ask themselves that question. And then they ask then the next question is what's the business model? And I think at the end of the day, you know, as a chemist, I'm going to say something. I think one of the things I'm most proud about is our freaking business model. You know, I went to Alan Mullally early on and I said, Alan, look, we got this first generation printer. It's pretty good. But, you know, we're staring at 30 years of innovation in front of us. And I'm going to feel really bad if somebody buys this thing because it's going to be obsolete pretty soon. And just, I don't want that. I don't want them to be mad at us. He says, well, and then he walked me through what he did when he was a lead engineer on the 777 at Boeing. He, as the lead engineer, went to his supply chain, GE, and he said, look, I don't want to buy jet engines from you anymore. I want power by the hour. I want you to feed me the most fuel efficient jet engines. And it was the first example of a subscription model. And here was the OEM driving his supplier to move into a subscription model. And you know, financial people want subscription models. But the mode, the rationale for our reason to go to subscription models was to build a better relationship with our customers so that they could grow with us. How do you get somebody to join you on a journey when your product's not done yet and not have them be pissed off at you? And a subscription model allows you to future-proof people from obsolescence. And people saw that. And so we had this most innovative business model. And then for manufacturing, the other end of this is people don't want you to raise prices on them when they're manufacturing. And so our subscription terms, you know, we went out of the gates with a three-year term, and now we've got customers signing six-year contracts with an option for an additional three, and then we have a new one pending at 10 years with an optional additional for five. And so we have we have the only example of manufacturing hardware that is a subscription. And so we have annual recurring revenue, ARR, not revenue, and we sell resins on top of that. And so it's a really amazing business with great visibility in, on revenue, and it's amazingly close relationships with our customers. So it's a, it's a very relationship building business that's completely distinct from everybody else in this field. And I think that's actually our secret sauce. It's a good thing that you're a professor, because I have to imagine that this required a tremendous amount of customer education, because you have to educate them on the product and the, the innovation there. And then it sounds like you also probably had to educate them quite a bit on the actual business model and, and educate them on why that's better. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah. And I, not, you say the word educate, I'm going to use a close cousin to that and talk about teaching. Mm -hmm. It's the narrative. And I'm, I'm on the board of National Geographic, and you know, it's all about the story and the narrative and teaching, the essence of teaching. And so, Brett, that comes at whether you're teaching your investors, your employees, and your customers. And understanding that, you know, high quality understanding for technically complicated deep tech solutions is, again, back another hallmark feature of, of Carbon and our entire team. And that's what's really been valuable. That's one thing that I, that I noticed when I was preparing for this interview is you guys are so good at communicating very complex things in simple terms. A lot of the other deep tech companies that I've talked to, I, I go on their website, I read through the articles, and I walk away having no clue what they do and how, how anything works. 
So it sounds like you've really nailed that. Is that something that came naturally to you? If we look back to, you know, a younger version of yourself, were you always a, a gifted storyteller and, and narrator? Or is that a skill that you had to really nurture and develop throughout your career? <laughs> I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher and I knew it early in, I think it was late middle school, early high school when I had a teacher you know, back in Pennsylvania, suburbs of Philly, and he was a science class and he was teaching us about pH. And I'm sitting there as a student in his class. And I'm like, this guy does not know what he's talking about. And I went home that night in the encyclopedia, you know, the search network of our times. And I taught myself about pH that night. And the next day in class, in a very cordial, collaborative way, I started a conversation with the teacher in front of the whole class. And I basically taught him and the rest of the students about pH. And I knew then, well, first of all, I was all stoked. That was great experience. I loved that. Everybody understood it. And I, I knew I had a gift for teaching complicated things to everybody. And, and that's served me well in what I've chosen to do professionally across the board. And you're right. There's a lot of people out there that make things more obscure purposefully. You know, it's almost like snake oil, you know, salespeople. And, you know, we've been leading with the fundamentals, but in a way that's accessible to people. And I think that's why we've got such a strong following, both uh, customers and, and investors. What advice would you have for deep tech founders or just founders who have complicated technology? What advice would you have for them to really hone in on that story and, and deliver that message in a compelling way? You know, it takes some personal fortitude. I can't tell you how many meetings I've gone into with our financial wizards and consultants and bankers. And, you know, they wanted you to like stick to the financials and stick to this. And it just seemed like such a dry story. And, and it looked like everybody else out there. And in fact, I'll never forget, I was with a, a group, Allen and Company. We were in Cody, Wyoming. Or bunch of investors and got invited to a very special event. I think it was like a trillion dollars around the table. And Brian Chesky just you know, was with them for a few hours. He just left. And then I came in and you know, the bankers had me all ready to do like a normal presentation that they could have given. And and the lead investor, uh, one of the guys around the table was also an investor in Carbon and said, hey, Joe, why don't you tell everybody why you guys are different? And it got me a chance to come off script and tell people who we are and what we're doing and why it's different and compelling. And so my advice is listen to people, but at the end of the day, in your heart of hearts, tell the story the way you would and the way you'd want to understand it. And I, I think if you lead with that, good things will follow. And I've always been one of, I see all these advice of outsiders that will tell you what to do and and I think at the end of the day, you got to do what you think is best and lead with that. You achieved what many founders, I think, have, at least in the back of their minds, uh, a goal to achieve, and that is to build a, a unicorn, a, a company that exceeds a valuation of a billion dollars. So one question we like to ask whenever we're talking with unicorn founders is, is the question around intention. So if we go back to the early days, in the back of your head, did you have that idea of, okay, this could become a multi-billion dollar company someday? Or did you almost stumble your way into it and you find yourself surprised that it's you know reached the, the level of success that it's achieved? Well, first of all, given the marketplace, you know what, uh, I think some many companies are no longer a unicorn from a value point of view. It's interesting. It's a re even more rare commodity now for sure. You know, I think when we built Carbon, we were absolutely focused on transforming the way people make things, powering innovation, powering better products 
And we knew we were wading into some of the biggest markets on the planet. But we never, you know, I don't think any of us thought of it in that context of, you know, what we're creating and in the whole unicorn vision. You know, we just wanted to build an enduring business that made a transformative difference. And then if we could help them bring new products, then we knew we had the auxiliary stuff like eliminating inventory, a warehouse in the cloud, local for local production disrupting and enhancing uh, supply chains and all these meta things that were on top of the 10-year story that would drive this even further. And we knew it's just transformative. You know, another great book is Play Bigger and, you know, market creation. And, you know, we knew we were going into that, but the equation of that with value, you know, was not front and center. And uh, we always felt blessed to have people invest in us, invest in this vision, and uh, allow us to build a, an amazing, an amazing, enduring company. Play Bigger is also one of my favorite books, and a big focus for our company is on category design. So we, we spend a lot of time studying category design and, and category creation. For you, then, is idea to production is that your market category, or how do you think about the market that you're creating? It's clearly that. It's clearly that you know, which is very different than you know prototyping, and it's really helping drive the innovation process and shorten the innovation cycle. And, you know, that's not easy for companies. And so we're doing that. We're helping them along the path of going from idea to great products at scale. And so that's what the, you know, the new leadership of Carbon's focused on, you know, we've got the technology from a printer ecosystem, you know, products that run 24 seven. Uh, we have the resins of the properties to be final parts. We have the design software tools to help them you know, a lot of these smaller companies, you know, two, $300 million companies, you know, they're not deep in engineer talent and uh, to give them the software tools to, to be designing products on the means of production and scale. We've been teaching them how to do that. We have an ecosystem of contract manufacturers, you know, kind of like the Foxconn's that Apple has uh, that can help take, you know, that are banks and banks of our printers where people can do the design in their own shop and then go to, you know, half dozen of these different contract manufacturers and scale with them. And now for me, you know, coming, you know, here at Stanford, the new horizon for us is is high resolution printing. You know, the most of the products that Carbon's customers focus on have a, a resolution of a, a basically 100 microns, you know, human hair is 100 microns. And so you can make dental products and running shoes and car parts with that kind of resolution. But, and Moore's law in the microelectronics world, you know, went from one micron down to tens of nanometers. And so for me here at Stanford, there's this gap between one micron and a hundred microns, a lot of micro systems. And we've been now developing new printers using the same physics and chemistry we do at Carbon to show there's value of products in this, in this space. And now Carbon's industrialized those printers. So now we have some really amazing high resolution printers that are going to power new products from vaccines to wearables for like continuous glucose monitoring, but for dozens of molecules drug delivery, uh, new kinds of electrodes for batteries and heating systems and electric catalysis. So it's just amazing new opportunities as you open up this space. And it's this continuing evolution of our technology driven by technological advances in this deep tech world that open up new markets that we're very excited about. One last thing I wanted to ask about, you mentioned Stanford there. There's this narrative that Silicon Valley is is dying or it's dead. It's moved to Miami, Austin, you know, wherever. There's a whole storyline about that. So I, I want to ask, if you were just starting your career again today, where would you move to? 
Silicon Valley, hands down. You know, look, this is driven by universities and talent. And I just quickly tell you, you know, the 20 universities that receive the most federal funding get over a third of the federal funding and research. 20 schools get a third. There's 2,000 universities, but, you know, 20 of them get a third of the budget. And if you're in Miami, you'd have to drive to Atlanta to get to one of those schools or Chapel Hill. And, you know, Silicon Valley is loaded with them and, and Boston's loaded with them and RTP's loaded with them. And so to me, this is all about talent more so than where the venture capitalists are hiding out. And uh, hands down, you know, the powerhouses of, of Silicon Valley and Boston and, and Research Triangle Park and, you know, increasingly Austin. And then, but I'm a big fan of what Steve Case is doing, you know, in Rise of the Rest and in these new pockets around the country. But, you know, I think the the talent is a big part of who we are and and that's what, you know, drives why I'm here. And now I've been out there the rest of the time of my life here on the West Coast in Silicon Valley. Makes a whole lot of sense to me and makes me glad that I, I moved here as well. Joe, we are over on time. I, I don't want to keep you any longer. I, I'd love to ask you another 20 or 30 questions, but perhaps we can save that for uh, part two and we can do a part two together. Before we wrap up here, if there's any founders that are listening in who just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Uh, you can hit my website at Stanford and hit the Carbon website. So you can look me up on the on the Stanford website. Amazing. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I've really loved our conversation. And I know it's going to be a huge hit with our audience. Brett, thank you for doing what you did. We all appreciate it.